Welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor LeCain. Right now, we're facing a serious labor shortage. Employers across the country are looking for workers. Some restaurants and stores are even closing because they can't find enough employees. How will we find the workers we need? Our guest today has a solution. Jeffrey Korzenik is a businessman who makes the business case for hiring people with criminal records. Considering these folks for a second chance hire opens up a pool of about 70 million people. He just wrote a book on this topic called Untapped Talent, How Second Chance Hiring Works for Your Business and the Community. Mr. Korzenik is the chief investment strategist of one of the country's largest commercial banks and is a leading voice in the business community advocating for second chance hiring. Jeffrey Korzenik, welcome to All Together Now. Thank you so much for having me. Um, can you please explain to our listeners, why did you write this book? This was originally written as a how-to guide because I started understanding that there was a strong business case for hiring people with criminal records, uh, saw that there was a labor shortage coming. But what I found was in that my advocacy speaking around the country, that a 45 minutes speech or a speaker's panel that I did was not enough information, that businesses needed a how-to guide, that they needed to see that other businesses had done this, and that they under, needed to understand there's right ways and wrong ways. And then uh, finally, um, I realized that they needed a much broader context for understanding how our criminal justice system got us to this point of 70 million people having some kind of criminal record. And uh, so, so I tried to put it in one place. Uh, business people tend to have uh, limited time to read something outside the box like this. And I tried to put this in a very digestible format and have found that it's actually been of great interest to people beyond the business community as well, simply because of the, the case it makes. Excellent. Uh, so you start the book by describing this labor shortage and you said, this is not just a problem because of the pandemic and people being knocked out due to health issues, child care issues. This is really a long-term challenge. Uh, can you explain why do you think that, like when did this labor shortage really begin and why do you think it's gonna be a long-term problem for employers? Well, the labor shortage really start, had its roots in the 1970s when we simply stopped having enough babies um, to, keep growing our workforce. Uh, people who follow demographics use this measure called the fertility rate. How many children uh, are women going to have on average over their lifetime? And to simply replace your population, you need a fertility rate of 2.1. Uh, mother, father to replace them biologically, you, you need two children and then an allowance for infant and early mortality. And we stopped um, being well above our fertility rate, uh, our replacement rate um, uh, in the 70s. And it's now kept declining to a level we probably haven't seen since the Great Depression. And our fertility rate now is so low that even immigration won't be able to supplement us. So this tells 
me that the, our labor shortage is not going away anytime soon. It, it was certainly exacerbated uh, by the pandemic, but it's going to last for decades. So that's going to be a chilling prospect if you're anyone who hires, you know, anyone in business or anyone in government, anyone in the nonprofits. Um, there's you know, already a scramble for workers now, and you're saying that's not going to go away anytime soon. And we all, whether we're employers or not, or in the workforce or not, we all really have a vested interest in seeing better workforce growth because it's one of the fundamental pillars of overall economic growth. Economists uh, point to really two factors and two factors alone that determine the economic growth potential of any economy. How fast can you grow for your workforce and how fast can you grow the productivity of the workforce? So it's both a quantity and a quality game. Are you getting people in the workforce and are you giving them all the tools to succeed and to meet their, their, their personal potential? Right. So I think you've correctly identified a major challenge here in terms of we need more workers and we need more qualified workers. You know, they can't just pick anyone up off the street, but um, it looks like maybe some workers or employers are <laughs> kind of faced with that right now. But when you were thinking about how to meet the worker shortage, you focused on the formerly incarcerated folks. Why did you focus on that instead of something like, say, immigrants or maybe um, mothers who have been at home who might need a more incentive to be drawn back into the workforce? I, I came about it a little bit in a roundabout way. I, I, as you mentioned, I work for a major commercial bank and part of what I've done for the last decade is I go out and meet with the CEOs and owners of uh, middle market companies, mid-sized companies, maybe uh, a couple hundred to a couple thousand employees. And these owners tend to have a very good feel for what's on the ground. And I'd have these, uh, these CEO roundtables. The New York Times even sent a reporter to one I did in Toledo. And you really get feel for what's going on in, in uh, the economy. And I started hearing a lot, of, particularly among manufacturers, that they couldn't find workers uh, who could pass drug test, tests. This was back in 2013, 2014. And I assumed uh, at the time that it was pot, marijuana was, was the problem. And, and I remember being in Lexington, Kentucky, and I said, what is it, pot? And all the CEOs around the table said, no, pills. And at that oh. point, the opioid epidemic really oh. wasn't headline news uh, the way it has, has become since. And I started looking into that and I came to understand that the social ill of the opioid epidemic was not just a social ill, it was a workforce impediment. And once your eyes are open, you know, you can't unsee once you've seen that social problems become economic problems when they get to a certain magnitude. And so ultimately, this big question among economists at the time of why is our workforce, labor force participation so, uh, so low? Why are so many people uh, missing from the workforce? I came to understand it was three social ills, long-term unemployment, the opioid epidemic, and the incarceration recidivism cycle. And they're, of course, interrelated. And then I was very fortunate uh, that I, by accident, I stumbled across some employers who had figured out how to do this right, how to take marginalized populations, offer them gainful supportive employment in a way that worked for their businesses. And once you started uh, coming up with both 
the magnitude of the problem, as you mentioned, 70 million people have been touched by the criminal justice system. Um, more concretely, 19 million Americans have a felony conviction. I mean, it's an astonishingly high number, and that's the big, big barrier. And uh, then you come across the way to resolve that. So you've got the big problem and the big solution. So that really focused me in that in that size. And, and, and the numbers are astonishing. You know, we have 600,000 legal immigrants, authorized immigrants to the United States, only about half enter the workforce. Some are too young, some are too old, some are stay-at-home parents. Um, so that's 300,000 a year. Here's 19 million who are largely sidelined, or if they do have a job, they're not, they don't have the ability to switch jobs or companies so that they can become more productive. Um, so, so to me, this is the, this is the big issue. And it, it, the, the labor shortage is so such a big and persistent issue. It's not the only solution. I mean, we have to do better at getting uh, parents who stayed home to raise their kids back in jobs, support working parents. There's all these issues, but this is the big untapped potential uh, just by the numbers. I love that. Big problem, big solution. You've got it. <laughs> You're talking my language. You know, I, hope, I wrote a whole book on breakthrough solutions. So now I'm going to have to do a chapter on you and second hires. <laughs> Fantastic. So um, the other thing I love about your book is you're writing it not as kind of a big hearted person saying it's the right thing to do to hire people who've had some brush with the law or even been in prison. But not just big hearted, but hard headed business executive saying this is strictly a case for you as a business owner. This is what you're going to need to do to identify, recruit and retain talent in the years ahead. So um, talk a little bit about when you take that perspective and you're making the case to your fellow executives in business, I don't think the first thing they're going to say is, gee, why didn't I think of that? They're probably going to come up with several reasons why they're afraid to do it, don't want to do it for some very legitimate concerns. What are the concerns you hear mostly from your fellow business executives? Sure. And just to kind of provide some context, you're absolutely right. I don't focus on the ethical case. I leave that to others. I don't want to dilute my message to business executives that this is a business case. It's business, not charity. Because businesses will write checks to charity, but they're only going to hire people who can add value to their enterprise. Mm -hmm. So the three objections that come up are, uh, there are three major objections that come up. The first is uh, largely revolves around workplace safety and negligent hiring liability. If hiring someone with a criminal record, am I endangering my uh, workers? Am I endangering my customers? Or am I taking on extra legal liability by hiring someone with a criminal record? The second objection uh, that comes out is one of quality. Uh, my friend Rob Perez runs a, a wonderful uh, cafe in, in Kentucky that hires people uh, out of halfway houses, mostly people who are recovering from uh, heroin addiction. And uh, he, he had trouble when he opened this cafe, he had trouble attracting workers. I said, were people afraid to come to a place that employed people with criminal records and, and, and past troubles? He said, no, 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 they assumed it would, the quality would be bad. And, and he assumed they assumed that second chance meant second rate. 
And then finally, they get like dozens and dozens and dozens and ultimately hundreds of five-star Yelp reviews. And people understood it's it's not it's not, it doesn't compromise quality. And then the third objection is uh, one of reputation. And there are today some major corporations that actually do a wonderful job in offering second chance hires, um, but don't want it publicized. And that's that's another challenge. They are afraid that it will scare away customers who will either be fear for physical safety or go back to that set to second chance mean second rate. Um, so these are objections that have to be dealt with, and and you you can't um, you can't pretend these aren't real issues. It's really important to face them head on, and they deserve uh, respectful responses. Exactly right, and I love the fact you're just very direct. These are very legitimate concerns, and they're impediments that most employers would just hit those impediments and turn the dial to something else. Um, but you, in your steadfast looking for solutions, <laughs> have actually identified or created from what you have seen in your research kind of a model of how you can do this successfully. And you say there can be a lot of unsuccessful second chance hires. And if you do it badly, it's not going to be a good experience for anybody. But you can do it right by learning from people who have done it successfully. So talk a little bit about what, what are just like the highlights? What are the two most important things you're supposed to do to you know, to follow your model of here's the successful model of second hires. Yeah, now this is a really important point. So thank you for uh, bringing it up. My biggest fear today is that businesses faced with the labor shortage are opening their doors to criminal records, but they're doing it with the mindset that they're lowering their standards mm -hmm. or scraping the bottom of the barrel. Mm -hmm. If you don't go looking for talent, you won't find it. So the model, the essence of the model is that you treat this pool of individuals the way you would any other talent pool. You want to find, you, you need a process for identifying who's a good fit, which means who's ready to turn their life around and be a good employee and has sufficient stability uh, to, to uh, do that. And then like any other talent pool, you want to figure out what gaps do you need to fill? What services or, or training do you need to provide to allow those employees to thrive? When you put the two together attached to this population, that's where you get what, what I identify as the true second chance model. And that's also the one that's the good business investment. That, that's the payoff for businesses uh, is when you do it in that fashion. Yeah, I think that makes so much sense. You know, it's, it's basically a two-step. You know, one is you identify the good candidates out of that pool of 70 million and then to support them to be successful. And um, so let's talk a little bit on that first one, identifying good candidates. So we have this pool of 70 million people you've identified. Um, who are these people? Like describe, you know, like, you know we, a lot of people think, oh, it's maybe there's a lot of just one-time nonviolent drug offenders and they're filling up our prison. You say, no, that's not yeah. true. So yeah. who are I, these people? Yeah, and, and I never sugarcoat anything. I, uh, businesses need to have a straight facts to make a, a good decision. Um, not everyone with a criminal record is a wonderful person. 
but an awful lot of them are people who've made serious mistakes but aren't fundamentally bad people today. They may have even been at one point, but have changed. Um, the, uh, the, the first statement is, um, you know, tens of millions of the 70 million have minor infractions that, that might not hold someone back. But when you get down to the felony level is where it gets uh, uh, more serious and a, and a bigger barrier. The first uh, amazing statistic that are amazing to me or to, and often to people who have not been uh, following this closely is how many people have been convicted of felonies that were convicted of crimes of such a minor threat to public safety, they didn't even have to serve a prison term. So they might have, uh, prison terms are generally a year or longer of, of incarceration. So uh, more than half of the 19 million with felony convictions never even had to serve a, a prison term. They might have spent some time in county jail that might have been pre-trial uh, de detention, or they may have spent no jail time, but had community service, fines, probation, all sorts of things. So having a felony may not even be what it what what you think it is. Um, there's a long and unfortunate history of overcharging in this um, in our criminal justice system. Prosecutors. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, I'm sorry to generalize, but certainly some prosecutors and many prosecutors uh, learned to advance their careers by getting as many felony convictions as they as they could. Um, and, and if I could give your listeners a quick example of that, uh, a friend of mine runs a uh, workforce development program for women in, in um, dangerous household situations, helps them get out of those um, abusive homes provides them safe living spaces, education, childcare, wonderful, wonderful program. One of the clients in his program, a 19-year-old woman, was arrested in New York City for having two fake IDs. She was out on a date. Two, as a result of post-9-11 post anti-terrorism laws, two fake IDs with intent to defraud, in her case, trying to get a drink when she was underage, she was charged with a felony. These are the kind of overcharging that goes on now. So, so that's one element of this. But when you get to the people who are actually incarcerated, most were incarcerated not for minor offenses, but because they actually committed serious crimes. Um, uh, the plurality, just just under half, but but uh, uh, maybe around half at any given time uh, of those were convicted of crimes of violence. Uh, the next largest cohort are uh, people who are convicted for property crimes. Then you get to drug crimes and then you get to uh, public nuisance kind of uh, mm -hmm. crimes. So um, most people who are who spent time in prison were there for a crime of violence. But that does not mean that today they are violent people. Uh, very often, uh, you know, the overwhelming characteristic of people who serve time in prison or the first time they went into prison, the overwhelming characteristics were that they were poor and that they were um, uh, and that they were young and also overwhelmingly male as well. Although female prison populations have been rising, it's still overwhelmingly male. So we know uh, scientifically that young men make really poor judgment choices all the time because of uh, uh, brain development. Mm -hmm. And if you uh, if you are in certain environments, these tend to lead you to making the kind of choices that can land you in prison. But people grow out of crime. Um, this is kind of well widely recognized by criminologists. And often the people who committed the crimes at the time may have been wrong place, wrong time, or never raised with the opportunity to make better judgments. They just didn't have a framework. So uh, 
So I don't necessarily exclude anyone from consideration of uh, employment. The crime does not determine the viability of, 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 of the worker or the applicant. You have to look to other factors. That's an excellent description. And by the way, it just really struck me when you talked about how overwhelmingly male this population is. And your book says like 90% of these convicted felons are men. And that, that's the rise in women. That's correct. And also, I should remark, some of your, your listeners may have um, heard that drug crimes are a much larger percent of the population. That is true for federal prisons, tend to oh. be much more drug oriented. But of the total prison population, only about 7% are in federal facilities. So when you, you really have to look outside the federal system and to the totality of those incarcerated in prisons to understand the actual demographics and the characteristics of, of people who are in prison and then, of course, people who come out of prison. Well, and here's to your credit, not kind of going with kind of the myth that's out there that most people are in prison because they had some minor drug offense because of the overzealousness of prosecution you're talking about. That myth is very much out there and could play to your favor for people getting hired. But I love that you're just very honest about here's what we're really dealing with. I think people are much more likely to succeed when you say, here's really what we're dealing with, and here's really what it's going to take to succeed in that. Yeah, one, one of the reasons that we've had such poor success is we've got this mismatch uh, because every employer who has not really looked into it says, well, just give me a nonviolent drug offender. And the reality of those aren't most of the people you are going to be able to find. And number two, that's actually not where you have the best track record of success, because many, um, if someone has a drug offense that led, it, uh, led them to prison, very often uh, they may currently be struggling with addiction today, which is not a great uh, precursor to, to being a good employee. Mm -hmm. um, they're still uh, quite likely to be young, which is, again, not, not always the best fit because you need those brains to mature a little bit. Um, again, I don't exclude anyone just to observe that if you look historically at, say, recidivism rates, you know, who actually ends up going back and recommitting crimes, uh, the lowest recidivism rates are actually associated with violent crimes. And, and uh, one-time violent offenders hmm. uh, tend to actually have been situations of young people in the wrong place at the wrong time. They end up serving longer prison sentences and come out as older fully matured brains, and, and in some cases, far, far less likely to reoffend and, and ultimately a better bet for employers, but pretty hard to start there, right, for an employer, and I, and I get that. Right, and this thing about the male brain maturing later, <laughs> I will testify to that from the the boys I knew and certainly in high school and going into college even. I used to call this just, you know, young, young men are stupid was my shortcut. And, and I think I offended <laughs> some people. And, you know, I always say, look, it's not an exclusively male disease, but we, we all know it's predominantly. So I, I, I am not so old. I don't remember you know, the mistakes for which I never got caught uh, as a young man. And then as a as a as a father of two young men, I, I have a ringside seat sometimes, too. Exactly. And I think every parent of a teenage boy understands what we're talking about here. Um, and you have a beautiful 
example in your book about how sometimes, uh, you know, people get, they just do something stupid or thoughtless or, or even something that's kind of totally within social norms, but they end up with a record. And you talk about, you know, imagine if your daughter were coming back from serving in Iraq and then talk a little bit about that example with, and, and how the response to what the daughter would choose to do can vary enormously by who she runs into and by what but, state she's know, in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have, um, m- m- again, most uh, people who are in the criminal justice system or justice impacted are governed by state law and not federal law. And mm-hmm. so we have... We don't have a criminal justice system. We have a federal criminal justice system, 50 state criminal justice systems, and then things like um, uh, you know, lands controlled by Native Americans have separate justice systems and, and military justice systems. So you have this whole big patchwork. And so uh, things that might be a misdemeanor in one state are, are felonies in others. So I just gave the example of um, an adult, someone older than 18, but younger than 21, um, who is uh, has a few glasses of wine. And, you know, I specifically give the example of a, a, a you know, hypothetical example of a young woman who's come back from serving in Iraq and there's a party and she has a couple glasses of wine that put her over the limit. And the outcomes vary from um, can vary from a traffic violation if if with with the appropriate lawyer to a felony, to a misdemeanor, to mandatory, incar- you know, a couple days in jail, mandatory incarceration, um, all depending, is there a minor in the car with her? You know, is she driving her, her younger brother back from the party or something like that? And I also like to use the example of uh, DWIs driving under the influence because my strong suspicion uh, is that many uh, CEOs and business owners of a certain age, like my age, remember a time where we might have behaved very badly and just didn't get caught. Mm-hmm. And uh, and to understand that under certain circumstances, even if no one was injured or there was no accident, it could have ended up as a felony, I think is eye-opening. And and we all understand, and, and those of us who, who might have... Uh, done that in our youth, understand how lucky we were that nothing worse happened. And so I, 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 I'm, I, I, I do hope that that section helps CEOs and people who have had no justice impact think differently about what it means to have a criminal record and who might have it. Uh, the opioid in- epidemic, incidentally, has also played a real role and it's become so widespread and because prescribing was done more in, you know, white, middle class, working class uh, communities, um, it is very common in some of these states like uh, Ohio and West Virginia, uh, where everyone knows someone who has an, a family member who has an opioid uh, addiction, opioid uh, use disorder. And we all understand how that can wrap people into the criminal justice system. So the world has changed a little bit and people do I think have more empathy for having a criminal record if they understand a criminal record doesn't necessarily mean, you know, gang shooting or serial murderer or serial rapist, you know, really start, starts to broaden out their understanding of the terminology. Yeah, that's great. So, so let's get back to your two steps to the successful model here. 
On the first one, identifying good candidates, we've been talking about who is the general pool. So what do you advise companies to do? You know, because I can imagine, and you've talked about this in your book, there are some people who commit heinous crimes, but it's a one-time thing. Yeah. Maybe it's a crime of passion. And, you know, they'll be perfectly fine coming out and working a job and so forth. Or someone might have done something that you wouldn't even think, like what you're talking about, the hypothetical, the daughter has a few drinks and turns up she gets a felony conviction because there was a youngster in the car she was driving home. So um, how is an employer to sort all this out when they have so many reservations about it? What are they going to do that helps increase their comfort level and find the ones who are likely to succeed in their companies? My contention is that employers are largely, whether they think of it this way or not, one of the things that they hire on ultimately is character. They want people who are going to be honest, act responsibly, raise their hand when when they need help and not try to you know manage through something on their own when they shouldn't. Um, those are all really questions of character. And it's very hard when the only thing you know about someone is that they made a major mistake that landed them on the criminal record. That, that seems to be at odds with hiring of someone with character. But you can uncover, not, not all 19 million people with a felony conviction are people of character or people you want to hire, but many, many millions are. So how do you find that? Um, employers simply, unless they become very experienced in this, can't do it on their own. They need to partner with others who have built more of a relationship with these candidates and can essentially be referral refer, referral networks mm -hmm. and can attest to character. So what do these look like? Uh, typically, it's a nonprofit uh, partner, a re-entry nonprofit, people who focus on helping people who are exiting prison get back into the workforce. It might be halfway houses, transitional housing. It might be um, nationally recognized nonprofits like Goodwill that, that do a good job with this in many markets. It might be a local church. Uh, um, there is no one size fits all solution, but there are many, many possibilities. Uh, even probation and parole officers, prison authorities um, have all become, for some employers, really good referral networks. Um, then there's some um, other models as well. There, there are groups like uh, CEO, the Center for Employment Opportunity, which operates in, uh, I believe, 20 plus cities uh, right now. They provide transitional employment. They will employ people for, say, three months and, and kind of help shape them as employees and provide essentially a report card. This person showed up on time every day to, mm -hmm. uh, they'll take on contracts to you know clean up a park or something like that. Um, and they can provide uh, attestation about viability of an employer. There's temp to hire uh, programs. There are temp staffing agencies like uh, um, uh, First Step Staffing in, based in Atlanta, but they're in about 10 cities. Uh, Kelly Services, Kelly, the big global staffing agency is, trying to, is starting to launch something like this. So those allow employers to get a feel for someone as a potential employee, as a temporary staffer, who can ultimately become a permanent hire. Um, temp to hire has a, has a bad connotation for employers because in a tight labor market, traditional employees who are good don't have to go to a temp agency typically. And so they don't think of that as a good source. But this is a truly untapped talent pool. And these are people who have been overlooked. And so temp to hire is actually a very, very good viable uh, pathway as well. 
Yeah. So, uh, so the good news for an employer is you don't have to figure this out on your own. You partner with someone who's got a bird's eye view and has worked with these folks and can help you figure out who's a good fit and who's not for what you're looking for. So, And this is a change of mindset for many nonprofits. They are used to thinking that they have their client, the individual in need of help. They also have to understand they have a customer at the business. And so there have been some unfortunate incidences of nonprofits referring people over because they're in desperate need, but aren't ready for employment. And so they really have to change, some of them have to change their mindset and understand that this is a long-term partnership and that they have to provide someone who's truly job ready and not sugarcoat any shortfall, shortcomings of the candidate. Um, so it's a true partnership. And, and there are then responsibilities that the employer has back to the nonprofit, funding support, technical expertise. Um, it, it, it really works when they work together. I totally understand and I can relate. I mean, we adopted a, a special needs girl uh, when she was around four years old. And boy, did she come with a pack of behavioral challenges, this and that. It was like, wow. In fact, one friend met her and said, oh, I'm sure someday they're going to name a hurricane after you. <laughs> but I found like I'd get her into the Girl Scouts program or various program. I found if I just was honest I would go to the head. So it wasn't like conversation for everybody, but go to the head of the program and say, here's the situation. Here's this child. We're trying to help her. We would love to work with you to help her. Here's what you might expect. Here's what works with her. Call me if there's anything you ever need. So I want to discuss. And I found most people kind of rose to that occasion and they saw it as an opportunity to help a youngster who was really uh, would have gone off the rails otherwise. I, you know, we have so many wonderful people out there on all sides. And uh, this really honesty brings that out, you know, being direct and, and um, asking for help, being there to partner and support um, works in this instance as well. Yeah. So that's our step one is find the good candidates and then step two is support them to be successful. Describe a little bit of what's the kind of support companies might want to give to these second hires. It is often something very concrete, like transportation support. Uh, people, particularly those coming out of prison, have often lost their driver's licenses um, when they uh, uh, during their time in prison, or they may have fines to repay. All sorts of complications, and uh, or or can't afford, a, uh, certainly can't afford a car, and may not be served by traditional public transit. So employers will partner with nonprofits, sometimes the same nonprofits that refer the candidates to get transportation support. Uh, one of the companies that I've uh, studied, uh, CK, CKS Packaging, in, uh, well, they're based in Atlanta, but they're in numerous states. Um, if you have a Dasani uh, water bottle, it was probably made by CKS Packaging. That's what, that's what they do. Um, they have a wonderful second chance program started by uh, one of their executives, Lloyd Martin. And uh, they found that where um, their employees from this program lived, was not served on the bus line that took them to the factory in Atlanta. So they petitioned the Atlanta Transit Authority, which moved the bus line. So, you know, there's all sorts of solutions um, out there for things like that. But housing is a big issue. Clothing 
is often an issue for people coming out. Mm. And all these things often will have nonprofits who, who work with them. But, but I think just as much as you have to look at the concrete issues, you have to look at what I'll call the softer issues, but, the, but they're just as important. When I speak to business audiences and I speak to thousands of business owners and executives every year, it's just part of, part of my day job. And, I, and when I'm talking about this, I always say, who taught you how to dress appropriately for work, how to show up on time every day, how to handle criticism or feedback from a supervisor or any of the hosted things that are part of being a viable employee. And in most cases, it's a parent or maybe a friend of a parent. And when you look at some of these communities, particularly communities of colors have been so impacted by the criminal justice system that there's a loss of transmission of successful work values. And, mm -hmm. and so you need to provide some basic uh, mentoring and not assume people from these backgrounds of deep poverty. And this has nothing to do with a criminal record per se, it's a, mm -hmm. coming from a, uh, a under-resourced um, community and not having mentorship or not knowing that what the world can can be and can provide. So you need an employer who understands that these are some of the gaps that have to be made up for and has a little bit of flexibility. Um, uh, uh, the classic example is many, many places have a uh, no show, no call, no job rule. So if you don't show up and you didn't call in, you're automatically terminated. And just to go back to CKS packaging, uh, this happened to one of their first second chance hires. This gentleman didn't show up for work. He didn't call in. And the HR person wanted to terminate them because per company rules. And, and uh, my friend Lloyd said, you know, we, we, we need to understand what's going on. Let's give it another day. Day two comes, still no show. But they had helped provide housing for this individual who had been previously homeless. So they went and knocked on the door, got in the car, and the man answered and, and said, you know, Mr. Lloyd, what are you doing here? And um, he said, well, you didn't show at work. He said, yeah, I'm sick. You know, I didn't think you wanted to show, but I can get my coat and, and come. He said, no, you did the right thing. Why didn't you call? Or why didn't you? And he said, well, I don't have a phone. Uh -huh. In fact, I don't have a friend with phones. In fact, I don't really have any friends. And so it's just as much about understanding you have to meet workers where they are. And when you are um, talking about hiring from these deeply challenged backgrounds, you need to go a little bit farther to, to, to meet them. And it's still a business proposition. It's an investment because the trade-off is that when you give someone an opportunity that they never thought they would have, they are tend to be very grateful, engaged, and loyal. And the combination of loyalty and engagement is a recipe for employers of, first of all, low turnover costs, but more important, that creates very productive employees. You like your job, you care about your job, and you stay there so you learn to do your job better and better and better. That's a recipe ultimately for profitability. Absolutely right. And, you know, it's so... Um telling on this whole thing the things you don't think about that if you're raised in the middle class how to set a table how to talk to people how to dress how to you know show up on time or call if you can't come all those things that we kind of just take for granted because it's like the air we breathe if you're coming from a more resource deprived situation or maybe you've got a parent or two that's in jail um you're, you're so 
that you kind of don't pick up that stuff. I remember visiting Delancey Street in San Francisco once the great criminal rehabilitation. I've enjoyed a dinner there very much myself. So Oh, fantastic. And I I took a tour there. Then the guy who was giving us a tour, by the way, was a convicted murderer. And he had murdered his girlfriend in a crime of passion. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm glad I have company here. But he was a wonderful guy. And he was really getting his life together. And he said they were, they teach them how to set the table. They teach them how to cook. They, you know, they teach them, they take them to the theater. Like how you behave when you go out on a date or go out with people and things you go, oh my God, you actually have to train people. But it's like, they missed all of that growing up. He said, you know, my father was in San Quentin, so I never got to, you know, learn what I needed to learn from him. One of my favorite uh, second chance employers is a a fellow in Akron, Ohio, Ray Dalton. And uh, Ray came from a challenge background himself, so he really understands. He offers things like financial literacy training. He makes people open a bank account. So you're not going to go to the money, uh, you know, the, uh, the, I forget the term, the money changers, you know, the, the, the stores where the, the check cashers, where you lose too much of your money. Right. He provides financial education. He gives them etiquette classes. He takes them to a restaurant so they know how to be. And, um, you know, he said, he has said, he's a very successful business and serial entrepreneur, very, very, very successful. And he, he said, second chance hires are more work up front, but they're worth it. And uh, he, it's uh, really encouraging to see someone who's um, gotten so much out of um, our economy and life, making sure that others benefit uh, as well. I, one other quick uh, story, and, and I think this is somewhere in the book. I met a uh, owner of a manufacturing plant in Illinois, and uh, he had a second chance hire and um, who was working out great. So he named him as one of several employees that they were sending to the local community college for a class. And this young man who had been an exemplary employee didn't show up to the class. And it was a, a community college. And not only didn't show up to the class, then stopped showing up to work. So he went and found him. It was the CEO of a successful plan, went and found this young man. The young man had had such a, uh, an upbringing of limited potential. He couldn't imagine himself going to college, even to take a class at a local community college. Right. And then he was ashamed. So he was terrified and intimidated to show. And then he was ashamed that he did not show. So he stopped showing to work. And, and fortunately, the CEO got it wrapped support around this young man, got him, you know, someone to accompany him to the program. He's and, and helped open up his world. And now he's still there as a successful employee, but you do have to meet people halfway. What a wonderful story. And, um, you know, and, and sometimes it can be something as simple as they don't know how to dress. So they don't want, they feel awkward. Am I wearing the right thing? And, so we are uh, standing at the water cooler and someone said, oh, you're new. Where were you before? Right. That's not an easy, you know, that, that, that's not an <laughs> easy prison. question to answer. If, yeah, if, if the location starts with the correctional, you know, includes the term correctional. <laughs> I'm from San Quentin. How about you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, so it's easier to do this once there's an established program, then you can kind of get some momentum. But those yeah. early hires, it's tough for them and it's tough for uh, for the employer as well. 
Well, and I think your focus on getting the support, getting the accommodations needed for that particular person, having a mentor, you know, so someone they can contact and ask, just say like, uh, you know, is what should I wear? Or is this the right thing? That's right. You know, whatever the question might be, we wouldn't might not even think of what the questions would be. But if they have someone they can ask, it just makes it so much more comfortable for everybody. One of the programs that's really interest, uh, interesting to me is in Minnesota, there's a nonprofit, wonderful nonprofit called the Redemption Project. And uh, they start the interview process uh, six months before release. And they actually have a program that helps people in prison start thinking about how you make better choices. They, they, it's a, essentially a virtue-based training and people who have never had a good framework for how to make decisions really embrace this. But they have employers come in and start being coaches and mentors with no um, requirement that they hire people, but it starts building that relationship. And their curriculum actually has a program. How do you start teaching about your company values prior to release? And it allows employers to do some to, to get the beyond the fact that they don't really know a person. They get to know a person with six months of mentoring. And then critically, once the individual comes home, comes out of incarceration and is an employee, they've built up a relationship of trust with a supervisor at the employer. And that makes things, you know, I think all of us have had some work experience where you didn't trust your supervisor. And that's a miserable experience that doesn't work. But when you have a, a situation, a relationship where you have a strong bond of trust with your employer, everything works better. Right, exactly. Well, I want to just circle back to a point you made, which I think is one of the most exciting parts of your book that I found. And that is that most of these accommodations or services that are needed to support the second hires are the same things that you would need to support someone who grew up uh, in poverty or maybe working class family, but they are kind of missing some things that they might need to succeed in the workplace. And they don't have anyone that they can turn to that helps them figure that out. So when I read that in your book, I thought not only is, could this help like the 70 million people who are, you know, uh, have jail, yeah, have, have been incarcerated. This could be like it's half the country now has is either in poverty or has lived in poverty or struggling. You know, you saw that report from the Federal Reserve. Something like sixty percent of Americans cannot meet an unexpected expense of four hundred dollars in a month. I mean, it's very high numbers of people. How do you see this whole experience and what you know about the second hires? How do you think we can build on that to reach out to, you know, the millions more who are poor or working class who need this kind of support to succeed in the workplace? Well, one of the things that I love about advocating for hiring people with criminal records is if we can solve for, oh, you know, Hiring the young man of color who committed a crime of violence and spent time in prison. If you have the system set up to hire and support and turn that individual into a successful employee, 
it's going to work across all sorts. You, you've, you've taken the tough one, you've done the tough one, the rest is easy, but the mindset of how do we find people who've been overlooked and marginalized? How do we find out who's who's a good fit and how do we support them appropriately? One, once you've opened your eyes to this, um, it, 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 the rest becomes uh, easy. And so, you know, bringing a, a, a mother who left to raise her kids has been out of the workforce for 10 years, that's easy after you've done this, right? And it's just, how do you find who's ready? How do you find the, the, this, the how do you fill the gaps that, are, that were created by that situation from an employment perspective? But yes, this is one of the ways that we can lift people out of poverty. The way ultimately, and this is the business perspective, is the way you lift people out of poverty is by making people more productive and so that they can earn higher wages. And if you're in a labor shortage, as we are going to be for many decades, um, there is, um, you will earn what you can produce, right? Because there's there's a bidding up and people are chasing, chasing mm-hmm. talent. So what we have to do as a business community in our country is figure out how to help everyone who wants to be more productive become more productive. And the American business community, because we had such a glut of labor, we had so many, um, such a, uh, we had the millennial boom, we had the baby boom. We never really had to worry about this. Now we have to worry about this. And um, it, it is a moment of great hope and, I, and opportunity, and I actually see it starting to happen. Um, what we have to hope for is that this economic cycle lasts long enough that the near-term demand that's creating business, starting businesses to think differently will, will continue and we'll start to get some successes. If we were to have a recession tomorrow, it would set this back dramatically because the investments that businesses need to make just are going to take some time to pay off. That's very exciting to hear. And uh, where do you see this? I mean, obviously, you've got great examples that you've mentioned here and more in your book of where businesses are taking the people with a criminal record and having successful hires. Um, Where do you see the work happening to kind of expand that to the the rest of the marginalized, poor, you know, working class who really haven't seen a doorway into a permanent full-time job it, it is starting to um this this battle as you were uh, uh, which has largely been in smaller middle market sized companies which felt the pinch of the labor shortage earlier uh and started developing these great models it's now being joined by large companies, and that's really important. And also by companies that, um, you know, you would see this a lot in manufacturing or construction has typically been a you know, quote unquote felony friendly industry. But now you're getting the tech world starting to look at this uh, as well. Uh, one of the focal points for this is uh, a national organization called the Second Chance Business Coalition. And this was uh, co-founded by Craig Arnold, who's the CEO of uh, of a company uh, based in Cleveland, and Jamie Dimon, uh, the CEO of J.P. Morgan. And having leadership uh, like that goes a long way. And what's critical, there have been 
uh, CEOs before who've you know signed on to pledges and things like that, but didn't actually go in and look at their processes to ensure that anything happened. The commitment of companies joining the Second Chance Business Coalition, that's companies like Procter & Gamble, Home Depot, Microsoft have joined this as well. Coke Industries has been a leader in this and, and uh, their subsidiaries like Georgia Pacific. Um, one of the uh, commitments, there are two, two primary commitments. One, they're going to commit to doing actual pilot programs. And two, they're going to share data and, and, and best practices among themselves. So one of the companies, uh, it's interesting, the small companies led the way, but the big ones are following. One of the first companies I met, I was so fortunate to have this uh, meeting, was a company called Nehemiah Manufacturing in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. 130 of their 180 employees are second chance. Dan Meyer, the founder, is a master at this. And uh, Harvard Business School actually did a study of them in 2018 and told us now required reading for all MBA candidates at Harvard. But as a result of being in Cincinnati, one of his investors was friends with the CEO of Kroger Stores, the, the third or fourth largest employer in the United States, the grocery store chain. They operate under many different names. And he said, you got to go see what's going on at Nehemiah. So the CEO of Kroger, this you know huge company, was so impressed, he started a pilot program, 200 workers in Cincinnati. It's been so successful. They're spreading it nationwide. And uh, so uh, Kroger is part of this Second Chance Business Coalition. And, and they interpret Second Chance broadly. It's, it's to your point, uh, uh, Illinois, it's, it's not just people with criminal records, it's people in deep poverty or people with homelessness or addiction. And they're offering, in their words, new beginnings. And uh, this, this is the kind of thing that is really transformative, uh, not just for the business community, but for our society. Absolutely. And I know you've focused your book and rightly on the companies and what the companies can do, and what they are doing. Uh, it's a fantastic book, by the way, listeners, Untapped Talent. You want to read this book, even if you don't own a company, it's so inspiring. Um, is there a role here for government in some way, like um, say we have a new secretary of labor here, Marty Walsh, who happens to be a friend of mine, does Marty know about this? And is there something that the Secretary of Labor could do? You know, I, I, it's funny because, because I have been trying to figure out how to get into Secretary of Commerce and Secretary of Labor. So so feel <laughs> free to send him a book. And, uh, <laughs> um, you, you know, to a large degree, um, the federal government has some limits because most people in the criminal justice system are in state run systems, state prisons, things adjudicated by state courts. That being said, the federal government um, can do a number of things. One, just be the bully pulpit. You know, they can be a convener. I, I was fortunate uh, to be invited to the White House twice for these big events in the previous administration that were very bipartisan um, and, and uh and talked about prison reform and, and uh, the first uh, the first step act and, and things like that. Um, and, and just being a con convener is very helpful to make those. I've always thought that um, either labor or commerce should offer uh, some kind of a business prize. The Commerce Department has the Malcolm Baldridge Award, which is an award for quality in American business. And it's coveted by uh, companies. They hire consultants to chase this. Why don't we have a brass ring like that 
for being a great second chance uh, employer. Um, and then, so there's models, there's funding they can provide for trial programs. Uh, there's um, uh, what I think would be particularly helpful is the ways, and this would probably be the Justice Department, uh, grants to state prisons um, to do different kinds of training programs. There's a whole host of things that the federal government could show leadership on that would send the right signal across the board. That's fantastic. Well, it's the kind of thing Marty might go for. I mean, he's very upfront about um, he's a recovering alcoholic and had substance abuse issues, and he's done tremendous work in Massachusetts, um, first as state rep and then as mayor of Boston and that area. So I think he'll have a real sensitivity to this if he cannot go back to Massachusetts and run for governor, <laughs> which, which he may do. But hey, even if he does that, he can do it as governor, right, with the state prison. So Yeah, and, and you know, the big thing is to reframe this as not just a charity issue, but this is a business. This is the workforce we're going to need. And I know the Labor Department has, has, a, uh, has to have a real focus on that, just given our demographics. Right, absolutely. And you mentioned there about the training that can be done. Um, you talk in your book, the most successful in-prison programs are education. So, uh, I mean, I'm a huge fan of education. It's, you know, it's a real doorway up and out um, for a lot of people. It is, and it also proves to employers that you're more than your mistake. If you went in through, uh, got a, a degree through the Bard Prison Initiative, which was the pioneer here, or many, many uh, colleges and universities are offering uh, programs. There's bipartisan support for Pell Grants for people in prison that had been taken away at one point and uh, have now been uh, restored. Um, it, it proves to employers you, you, you're not just your mistake. And that's a really big benefit of, of, that, uh, of that training, even if it doesn't relate to, uh, to jobs. And what's interesting, these, these uh, the educators who go into prison routinely report that the, their prison-based students are better than their campus-based students because they have such richness of life experience and are so engaged and eager to, to make something of themselves and make the most of their education. Right, exactly. And, I, you know, I think one of the most important takeaways, both of this conversation and of your book, is that basically these second chance hires are you know they have a few more challenges and require that careful identification and support your two-step to success um but when you do that identification and support you can help turn a life around you can have a worker who is productive and loyal and very grateful for that opportunity uh that can really uh, be some extra juice for your company. Hey, absolutely. And companies make big investments in talent all the time. You know, McDonald's built a new headquarters in downtown Chicago to be closer to where young professionals wanted to live. It cost them $200 million. Here, you make an investment in talent in other ways. And not only is the investment likely smaller, you have partners who will help pay for it government funding, nonprofit funding. It really is a very good value proposition for employers who understand how to go about it. Fantastic. Well, uh, listeners, here's the book. It's Untapped Talent, 
uh, how Second Chance Hiring works for your business and the community. And I highly recommend that you read. I think it's a great Christmas gift because it's so full of hope and possibility and redemption, which is what we all need, not only at Christmas, but all year round. And the author is our guest here, Jeffrey Korzenik. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I wish you all the best in your important work. Thank you. Listeners, I'll see you next Thursday at 3 o'clock. This is Eleanor LeCain signing off of All Together Now.